This is an ABC podcast. G'day, Glads and Pods. Welcome to another week of the Little Wireless Program coming to you from Gadigal Country. I hope you've fully recovered from watching that interminable edition of uh, Antiques Roadshow from London the other day because tonight we'll make demands upon you. We uh, will have Laura Tingle shortly, followed by none other than Bob Carr on matters relating to Julian Assange. And then we're going to round off the evening by teaching you the origins of the alphabet. Only one more sleep, beloved listeners, until Labour turns out its pockets. And Laura Tingle, of course, is off to the lock-up. But, um, Laura, most of the big announcements seem to have already been made. What do you know that I don't know, Philip? Very little. I mean, I mean, they've made lots of announcements, but um, we've got this stupid, stupid system these days where they announce stuff, but um, when you sort of quiz them about it, they'll say, oh, you know, no, no, we've got to wait till budget day. And uh, so we've got no idea of whether they've got lots of other announcements left to make or whether that they've made them all or... Um, uh, I'm grumpy, Philip. What will the story the government will want to tell? I think the story that the government will want to tell uh, is uh, probably encapsulated in the line uh, that uh, Anthony Albanese gave his caucus today, which was this is a budget that will reflect Labor's values uh, because there's... um, you know, increases in a lot of the welfare payments, whether they're the payments for single parents, uh, whether it's an increase in the job seeker rate. But it's one of those things where, you know, as far as we know, Philip, um, it, it will be that they have given a little bit to everybody, but not as much as they probably need to to address the underlying problems in some of the um, systems which leave more than 3 million Australians living in poverty uh, because welfare has become such a demeaned and traduced and attacked idea in Australia. Uh, And um, so I think that will be an important one. I think they'll be pushing the fact that they've got a surplus this year and very small deficits over the next few years, which is really about trying to sort of say to people, can you just get off the idea that Labor doesn't know how to manage the economy? We'll be putting a lot of the resources boom-based uh, tax collections that we've got back into reducing government debt. We're very responsible economic managers. You can trust us. Elbo has uh, embraced a phrase used by the US Marines, leave no one behind, echoed, as I recall, by George W. Bush. How much money does he have to make that come true? Look, he's got a lot of money. Um, as I said, the resources um, prices have really given them a huge... Um, Paul Keating described something about being kicked in the backside with the rainbow about Peter <laughs> Costello, and I think there is there is an element of that, Philip. I'm not going to use the language that the former Prime Minister used about this. Uh, I, I'm not, And I'm not going to quantify exactly how much money is involved because... You know, there is a lot of money there which they weren't expecting and that's fantastic. Um, But um, uh, they've they've also, to their credit, as far as we can tell, uh, done a lot of savings measures as well. I don't know what the exact numbers are yet because, you know, we have to wait for the budget because it's also market sensitive. But, Laura, Uh, I understand that there's a possibility of a SERPA budget and that hasn't been delivered since the GFC. Yeah, no, so, um, in fact, yeah, no, quite a long time. In fact, I think since Labor was last in office, Philip, strangely enough, but, yeah, so there will probably be a small surplus, um, but I think the important thing more is, uh, one, whether the things they do are quality decisions. I think what happens with the budget, Philip, is that, you know, we always hear about expenditure review committees meeting, 
But right at the end of the budget process, there's also a revenue committee. And when they get their very last number, sort of set of monthly figures for, you know, what taxes have been collected, they make their budget forecasts. Um, those numbers came in last week looking very healthy. And as a result, the government went round going, oh, we've got heaps of extra money to spend. And I think they made a lot of very last minute decisions. And that's why it's particularly hard to work out what they're going to do tomorrow, because a lot of the decisions were last minute. You would have remembered there was a lot of speculation about the fact that they're only going to give uh, uh, people over 55 an increase in the um, in the job seeker rate, the dole. Um, now, you know, subsequently there have been reports that they'd give it to everybody, but not very much. I, I don't confess to having any inside knowledge about exactly what they're going to do and how it fits in with all their other measures. But I think there have been a lot of last-minute decisions which will change the nature of the way the budget is presented. Going back to the issue of the uh, petroleum resources rental tax, we haven't seen uh, the same outcry since, uh, well, since Kevin Rudd tried to do it. We haven't. Um, somebody in the resources sector said to me a, a few weeks ago that, uh, you know, it was quite a sort of honest uh, view. They said, well, actually, we've lost our social licence to complain, which I thought was an interesting observation. Um, but what is also true is that the changes that the government has announced um, in the last 24 hours, you know, are not exactly, you know, terrifyingly large. Um, they don't, you know, change the nature of the gas industries um, or, you know, sort of uh, economics. Um, so uh, they've consulted very heavily with the sector. So uh, in some ways you probably say that it's a bit of a worry that the um, that the gas sector actually has endorsed the changes, Philip. It sort of suggests they are a little bit weak, but... Um, but Jim Chalmers, of course, as the Chief of Staff to Wayne Swan as Treasurer, lived through the whole horror of the RSPT, uh, that is the mining tax debate, um, during the, um, the flowing out of the Henry Tax Review. And uh, he has no interest in going back to that particular space. So he's every, very every, Everything I know, I learn from either you or Twitter. And at the moment... The, That's a bit of a worry. The Twitterati <laughs> are saying Gough Whitlam wouldn't approve of the budget. Would he, how do you think Gough would react to the first Chalmers budget? Well, we don't know what's in it yet, Philip. I mean, I, I know this is very, you know, old-fashioned of me, but I'm, I'm waiting to see what is actually in it because my experience after years and years of doing budgets is that we all pontificate wildly about what's going to be in the budget and what should be in the budget, but until we've seen it, we really don't know. It's often a very different discussion in 24 hours' time. Hey, the um, only reason I raise the issue of Goff and Jim is that uh, Jim himself said that Goff would be proud of the budget. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. So the job seeker, as you said, they've, it looks like it's going to be a little more generous and perhaps uh, to people a little younger. Yeah. Well, one line of speculation, Philip, is that it will be $40 a fortnight more. Now, I think um, most welfare advocates would say that it needs to be like $500 a fortnight more minimum um, to sort of really bring it back to, to speed. I mean, there's been this huge division that's broken out between the way older Australians are treated and the way anybody who's not an older Australian is treated um, in so much social policy. Um, as usual, of course, uh, Philip, we blame John Howard for this, but he certainly started the, um, the uh, idea that you looked after pensioners and you looked after superannuants and you looked after older people in general. It used to be the case that um, the uh, unemployment uh, rate, uh, sorry, the unemployment payment, the dole, was about 90% of the age pension. It's now about 60%. So there's been this really huge generational change in the way we look at uh, welfare support. Um, so that's got to be something that we have to deal with. And uh, I don't know what the ultimate number is going to be. Maybe it is $40, but I'm going to wait and see on that. But I think they're doing something, Philip, even if it's something a bit marginal. Single parents will get their payments extended. How much was... Uh this a result of Finance Minister Senator Kate 
T. Gallagher, Gallagher pushing behind the scenes. She was a single parent herself. I think Katie Gallagher is one of the most interesting figures in the government. Um, she's got this massive job. She's both the finance minister and the minister for women at a time when there's an immense pressure for the government to address a whole range of issues that are related to women. Uh, I think she's had an enormous number of wins. Uh, when I'm told there is still quite a lot of hostility. We had Anne Summers on um, 7.30 last week saying how people still regarded um, single mothers as either whores or welfare bludgers. And it was um, it was sort of rather strong language, but I think there is a little bit of that. Um, and that those attitudes, you know, the, the cynical attitude about why um, single mothers are single mothers requiring support is still endemic in our sort of system of government. Um, but having said that, um, the government has reversed largely um, the decisions of the, um, of the Howard and Gillard governments to uh, limit single parent payments to people with kids under eight. Uh, they're going to make it uh, kids under 14, which will dramatically change the position of single parents, which who are predominantly mothers, um, in terms of not being shunted off onto the dole at a much lower rate of payment when their kids turn eight. I think this is a really significant decision and one of a number which the government should be applauded for um, in addressing a real injustice uh, in the system for the last 10 years, certainly. An abrupt segue to another matter. Robodebt has claimed another political scalp with Liberal MP uh, Stuart Robert uh, now keen to spend more time with his family, Laura. Or as somebody cynically said, Philip, um, you know, far, far from, from me, far, far, far be it for me for, to be cynical, but um, somebody said more, more time with his family businesses. But um, yes, no, uh, Stuart Robert is leaving. Uh, he was a key figure in the whole robo-debt disaster. Um, and uh, he's leaving before the robo-debt Royal Commission reports, um, which isn't a great su sort of surprise in a way. Um, of course, what we're really waiting for is the departure of Scott Morrison, um, which people have speculated about for several months in Canberra. There's a lot of talk about him getting um, some sort of job uh, with an overseas organisation, either in the US or the UK. We shall see whether that happens or not. Um, but I think uh, the fact that Stuart Robert is going before the Royal Commission brings its uh, findings down is interesting. Um, and obviously we still don't know exactly when the by-election is going to happen for his seat since he hasn't actually left the parliament yet and probably won't for a few more weeks. But there is also a widespread expectation that Scott Morrison will not be with us in the parliament for much longer. I have to point out a strange link between you, Laura, me and my next guest, Bob Carr, and that is with all the three of us have had falls. The last time I saw Laura... She had a walking stick, which uh, she prodded me with. Bob Carr had a bad fall from which he is recovering, and so have I. We seem to be cursed. LNL it's a fashion film. <laughs> LNL on RN and uh, former Foreign Minister Bob Carr joins us with his view on what more should be done to help Julian Assange. Ahead of his coronation, Charles received a letter from uh, Julian Assange. It began, and I quote, On the coronation of my liege, I thought it only fitting to extend a heartfelt invitation to you to come uh, to commemorate this moment, this momentous occasion, by visiting your very own kingdom within a kingdom, His Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh. Assange has been a prisoner at Belmarsh for, well, over four years, but he's, 
he continues to fight attempts to extradite him to the US, attempts which, if successful, as we have pointed out on countless occasions, would see him face charges that could add up to 175 years in the slammer. Now, on Friday, the Australian opposition leader, Peter Dutton, agreed with the Prime Minister that the detention of Assange needed to end. And he came out with these surprising remarks on RN Breakfast. Of course, I'm concerned uh, for him at an individual level, and this issue's gone on for a long time. And uh, long? I think the Prime Minister, uh, I think it's gone on for too long. Uh, and I think that's the, uh, the fault of many people, uh, including Mr. Assange, to, to be honest. But uh, the, the matters, I, I think, have to be dealt with. And if the Prime Minister's uh, charting a course through to an outcome for that, uh, then that is a good thing. And uh, there'll be a lot of sensitivity around the discussion. So probably doesn't help to publicly speculate on it too much, but um, they're the issues that, uh, that we normally work with government on behind the scenes. So what does all this uh, development mean for Assange and what more can be done from a diplomatic standpoint to free him? There's a couple of very powerful ducks in the row before he went off to Washington. Kevin Rudd uh, privately assured me that he's got Assange very high on his to-do list as does my next guest in Bob Carr. The Honourable Professor Bob Carr has some answers to throw in for discussion. As you know, a former Australian Foreign Minister and, of course, New South Wales Premier, Bob's uh, an adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he joins me here in the studio. Welcome back to the program. How's your back? Oh, good, splendid recovery. Uh, titanium bridge takes the place of the old two destroyed when I fell when I had COVID. A COVID-related fall. So if you get COVID, be careful of crumbling to your knees when you fall out of bed. Were you surprised by Dutton's sudden show of bipartisan support? Yes, I was. And I don't think he's ever sounded more of a statesman uh, being able to speak for Australia's national interest as he did in that uh, that comment on ABC uh, Breakfast. Um, I thought it was splendid. And it makes it all the easier for the Prime Minister to do what I think is now required to lift the level of our representations with our American ally, as we are entitled to do, given the facts of this case. We'll get back to the this one shortly, but there's a simple question I want to put to you. Why <coughs> is he still there? Why are the US so determined to hold him? I think, I think it's uh, an almost a self-loathing on, in part, one corner of the American security state. At a time when American dominance, leadership, primacy is challenged, not least because of their own seething pathologies and the, uh, that tendency you've highlighted, America with the manifestations of a failed state. Um, Assange getting away with exposing an American war crime, uh, an undoubted American war crime. You can see it on video by typing in collateral murder, American servicemen from a, an Apache helicopter killing civilians, shooting 12 civilians on the ground during the appalling war in Iraq. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a challenge to the American psychology on, and Pompeo, who was Trump's uh, second Secretary of State was activated to raise this and to pursue it. And there's, there's a, yes, a pathology in one part of the American character that wants to see this to the end. And the end is a very grim one. It means someone receiving a sentence of 175 years and dying in a, a very isolated prison on the, the plains of Oklahoma. Elbow uh, told the ABC in London last week that he can't do more than make very clear what his position is, but you think that there are some strong arguments he can make to Biden. Philip, I always thought that this would take more than one-off representations, that the first instinct of that American security state would be to reject it with the argument that we need to demonstrate to anyone who's going to share our secrets with the world that this won't be tolerated. However, 
Here is the killer fact that an Australian Prime Minister must press and, if necessary, press a second, third and fourth and fifth time. The, the whistleblower who gave the material to Assange, the very brave, altogether admirable Chelsea Manning, walks free today because of a commutation extended, to his very great credit, by President Barack Obama. So the American who gave the information to the Australian walks free, but the Australian who published the information continues to be pursued with all the vengeful fury of the American security state. You have that is that that is the argument that enables an Australian Prime Minister to say to his American counterpart, "Listen, I can't defend this before the public opinion of my own country," and and that's a pretty powerful argument. I think that is the ultimate killer argument you use with the Americans. Your guy's gone free. You're still pursuing ours. But you also think there's a case to be made about extraterritorial reach. Well, think of this analogy. Think of an Australian based in Oxford who's exposed the mistreatment of Muslims in Kashmir by the Indian government or of the Uyghur minority, the, the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province by the Chinese state. And imagine if India or China, in these cases, said, hang on, you've published online our state secrets. Decisions of the Politburo, discussion notes of the Politburo or of the Indian Cabinet. We, 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 we've got an extradition arrangement with London and we're going to bring you back to Beijing or Delhi to go on trial because you've offended the national security laws of India or, in the other case study, China. Now, we would see that at once as entirely intolerable Yet that is precisely the analogy that applies to Assange being taken, not a US citizen, but being plucked out of London to be put on trial in Virginia. No one imagines that he's a spy, but being put on, on trial under the US Espionage Act. And that is a threat, if you think about it, to anyone anywhere in the world who publishes anything the US state brand secret. They can be prosecuted under, under the 1917 U.S. Espionage Act and offered up to the more of the America's notoriously cruel justice system. I think it's important to point out that Bob Carr isn't a newcomer to this campaign. Bob and I have been talking about it uh, for some considerable time. You regard it as absolutely all important to sort out. Yes, I do. There are arguments about in America that resonate about freedom of the media, every bit as important as what you've explored in your program several times, uh, the principles enshrined in the US Supreme, a very decision by a very different US Supreme Court about Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon, Pentagon Papers. I put it this way, Philip, no one could argue that the American people in the world weren't entitled to all that information compiled by the US Defence Department about the history of American involvement in Vietnam. Could anyone say could anyone say that the world was not entitled to know that American troops in a in a an Apache helicopter murdered people on the ground uh, civilians and exalted in it and exalted in it they were quite jocose as they 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 laughed about what they were doing the 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 recording that you can reach. Uh, through collateral murder in your search engine. They, they're sitting behind the gun sight camera, circling a Baghdad street and chirping merrily to one another as they pick their victim and punch bullets into 12 unarmed civilians, including a, a, a wounded man lying in the gutter. Now, the world's entitled to know about that. And what Bob Gates, the former US Defence Secretary, said, are oh, all in the fog of war. Well, are we going to apply that principle to, to what we quite legitimately are doing, investigating and prosecuting Australian war crimes in Afghanistan, all in the fog of war? Civilised countries don't accept that argument about war crimes. This was a war crime. We know about it because Chelsea Manning, now walking free, gave the information to an Australian who published it. Bob, this talks to the, well, to the very nature of our alliance, doesn't it? It does. If we haven't got the confidence and the maturity to say to our, our partners, the Americans, this is, Mr President, this is, I don't think you appreciate how important it is to Australian opinion, then we are admitting ourselves, permitting ourselves 
no character of our own under the architecture of the alliance. It means we've accepted, we've accepted the status of a kind of client state or American territory. I won't say the 51st state. It means we've got even less independence than a US governor would have. Really, we're like Puerto Rico or Guam up against the power of Washington. I don't think we've got out of the habit of having fruitful arguments with the Americans. We're now too coward to think about that. We are loyal to the alliance obligation to the extent of of giddy excess, even to the point where under AUKUS, we're making, we're giving effect to the biggest transfer of wealth outside this country that has ever taken place in our history. And in the context of that massive subsidy to US shipbuilding, if we haven't got the conference to say, Mr. President, I'm returning, returning to this matter, I'm not going to let it go. The Australian public wants me to say to you, if I'm put it candidly, as friends, as buddies, as mates, just drop the Assange matter and do it now because I'm afraid of what will happen to his health in Belmarsh Prison. Yes, I'm glad you raised AUKUS because in this context, Julian looks like a very, very small chess piece. In this context, it's worth less than five minutes of the President's time. Here you've got a, an American ally that makes itself a, new, a, a nuclear target by hosting several American communications facilities. We've committed ourselves, it seems, implicitly, if this is the real meaning of AUKUS, to entering war against China on day one of any of any conflict, we better pray, pray fervently to the goddess of fortune that that conflict, that war does not come about. It'd be a disaster for us. We'd be a surrogate target. Uh, in that context, if we, if we haven't got the, if we haven't got the, the confident character that enables us to say to the Yanks, you've got to trust our judgment on this, you must, you must drop this, then what confidence are we going to have in talking to the Americans should a conflict with China come about. Comrade Kevin Rudd has uh, just started his new role as our ambassador to the US. Might Kevin be a circuit breaker? I applauded applauded the prospect of his appointment when it was speculated on uh, at the very start, because I think of all the possible Australian appointments, professional diplomats or former politicians with fondness or knowledge of the US... He was by far the best. His knowledge of China, his knowledge of US-China relations, his knowledge of straits, Taiwan Strait diplomacy, Taiwan Strait diplomacy, means that Americans are likely to seem as interesting and worthy of spending a bit of time with. In that context, he's able to secrete a strong plea for America dropping the Assange case and allowing this Australian passport holder to walk free. He can marshal the arguments and do it effectively. You've also made the point that the Assange case is a test for US Ambassador Carolyn Kennedy. It is. Um, I, I speak with the most enormous respect for her father, who showed leadership um, Olympian leadership during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Kennedy brothers should be honoured in memories of all of us, everyone who loves peace, for what they did then and as president being able to give a speech a month before his murder about a world beyond the Cold War. In respect for what the Kennedy name means, I ask her to think about real ambassadorial duties in this case, conveying to Washington the imperative of the Assange matter and not allowing the security state in Washington to rule the roost on this. We ask so little of them, in a sense. We do. We are, we are as I said, loyal to the alliance in an almost exaggerated, flamboyant fashion. And We've become closer to them over the years for very understandable reasons. Um, but the habit of healthy disagreement with Americans has been, has been lost to us as a people. I think we've got to make it part of our international character under the architecture of the alliance relationship, which has broad Australian support. But I just urge our Prime Minister, this, this really has gone on. We, we've extended time to enable the new government to make its point and deliver the outcome we want. It's now time to elevate the argument. Good on you, Bob. Bob Carr, former Australian Foreign Minister, 
and, of course, New South Wales Premier. Coming up, the myriad myths around the invention of the alphabet. You'll enjoy this, Bob. Beloved listeners, if you think there are some wild conspiracy theories and mythologies swirling around in the contemporary digital world, wait till you hear about the alphabet. The understandings of how the alphabet came into being have shifted and changed through the centuries, driven by ideology, religion and geopolitics. Johanna Drucker has spent her life studying the overlays of information, print, books and art. She's the author of Inventing the Alphabet, The Origins of Letters from the Antiquity to the Present, published by Chicago University Press. And Johanna's uh, day job is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Information Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome, Johanna. And let's thank you. <laughs> let's begin by discovering a sarcophagus together in what okay. became the Lebanon. Excellent. All right. Well, a turning point in our knowledge about the origins of the alphabet came in 1855. A member of the French consulate who was stationed near Sidon, one of the cities on the edge of the Mediterranean, which is in an area that is referred to as Phoenicia and is part of modern-day, you know, Lebanon, Israel, the whole Levant. He was just thinking there might be treasures to be discovered. And he was out walking. He saw a kind of passageway to a subterranean realm. And he, you know, goes down there with some assistance and finds a sarcophagus in the shape of, you know, a person. I mean, sarcophagi can be, you know, square things that are tomb-like. This thing had the face of a king, and it was made out of basalt, and it had an inscription on it that was perfect. And this fellow decided to remove this. His name was Antoine-Aimé Perretier. He was French. And he brings this thing up to the surface, and it has an inscription on it that turns out to be from the 6th century BCE. Now, that might not sound that old, and it might not sound that important, but this is 1855. It's the 19th century. At that moment, in historical understanding of biblical history, no monuments related to the history of biblical texts had ever been discovered in the homeland of that history. So here was a Phoenician text which had on it an inscription that indicated knowledge of and stories of biblical tales. So the king, Ishmanazar, is like referencing his father, historical events. And the script on this sarcophagus is so beautiful. It's inscribed in stone in a hand that is so perfect and so practiced that anyone looking at it knows this has to be produced by somebody who is expert really expert, but where there are generations of scribes behind it. Johanna, so we're, we're, talking, yeah. we're talking about an ancient Semitic language, aren't we? Yes, we are indeed. We're talking about an ancient Semitic language because the Phoenicians were part of what we call the Afroasiatic language group. And those were, the, the Afroasiatic language group stretches from what we think of as modern day, you know, modern day Syria and into Iran, Iraq, down into Egypt. But the Semitic language group was, you know, the largest group of those. So Phoenician was a Semitic language that was part of that. But still, you've got this amazing thing. The French folks decide they should take this home. You know, it's the 19th century. This sarcophagus gets exhumed, brought to the surface, 
carried in a procession with oxen who are bedecked with flowers to be taken to a French <laughs> corvette called La Sérieuse, right? I mean, and meanwhile, the inscriptions copied and sent around the world. This is news, you know, front page news in New York and London and France, because never before 1855 had any Early alphabetic inscription been discovered in the homeland where it had developed. Mind-boggling moment. Mind-boggling moment. <laughs> My mind, mind <laughs> is suitably boggled. Where is it currently, <laughs> Joanna? In the Louvre. Okay, well, that seems explicable. Yes, well, <laughs> a, a lovely French nobleman, Afadelunia, decided to buy it, then he donated it to the Louvre. You know, we'll let those folks figure that one out now. I'm, I'm not going there. Now, this is a, a heresy, of course, because everyone knows that the alphabet was Greek. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that story um, is a good story to comment on. And if you ask the average literate person, even my friends who are poets, scholars, you know, and I live in an esoteric academic world. You talk to these people, you say something about the alphabet. The first thing they say is, which alphabet? Our alphabet? The Greek alphabet? Okay. So Herodotus, we remember him. He's a Greek historian from the 5th century, one of the major historians of Greek culture. Herodotus, in 440 BCE, writes an account of the alphabet in which he says, I'm seeing these inscriptions here on the Greek mainland. They're on pots. They're on, you know, sort of surfaces. They're really interesting. But they came to us, the Greeks, from the east through a figure he named as Cadmus. The term Cadmus means from the east, since that's actually a figure who's associated with Phoenician mythology. His little sister Europa got, you know, remember that story in mythology, taken off by Zeus and carried around the world. But Herodotus knows that the Greeks did not invent the alphabet. He says it came to us from the east, and that's true. By 440 BCE, the 5th century, the alphabet's well established in Greece, but it had come in the 8th, 7th century through trade routes from the eastern edge of the Mediterranean because the Phoenicians, who were fantastic traders, had taken this script developed by Semitic-speaking peoples and spread it through the south coast of Turkey to Cyprus to the tiptoe of Spain to the end of Italy to North Africa. My delightful guest is Johanna Drucker. <laughs> uh, now, Plato uh, went along with Herodotus, didn't he? he assigned yes, of the, course. He assigned the invention, well, to the Egyptian god Toth. Well, this is an interesting conflict because the question of, you know, are there other origins for writing systems is part of what Plato is paying attention to because the Egyptian system of hieroglyphics came into being a thousand years earlier. What we know now about the origins of the alphabet in that area of the, you know, ancient Levant, as we call it, or modern day Israel and Lebanon and Syria, is that it was around 1700 BCE. But cuneiform and Egyptian are at least a thousand years older. And Egyptian writing has its own origin story, and it's a different writing system. Cuneiform has its own origin, and it's a different writing system. What's amazing is that in this period around 1700 BCE is that Semitic speakers in a cultural exchange within this you know, domain decide that they can actually identify the meaningful sounds of their language. Johanna, we've got yes. a, a huge amount of ground to cover, so let's <laughs> let's jump briefly at least into the sure. 19th century okay. and, and the problems of anti-Semitism. So one of the interesting things about alphabet history and historiography, as I call it, when historiography means that we're looking at the history of how we know something, history is like, you know, what do we know? But historiography looks at intellectual traditions and writers. 
So one of the things, and this, my work here comes very much out of the work of a figure named Martin Bernal, who wrote a book called Cadmian Letters in the 1980s, is that the way in which the alphabet came to be characterized as Greek had to do with really British classicism and the desire to erase a Semitic past and to raise Greek culture to a level that was superior to all prior cultures. So if they could establish that the alphabet had been really distinctively modified by the Greeks, they could say that the Semitic origins didn't matter, those were crude, and Greece, the center of poetry, democracy, you know, sort of philosophy, was the center. But of course, we know that's not true. I mean, these older civilizations had poetry, they had philosophy, they had laws. Hammurabi's Code is 1800 BCE. You know, the legend of Gilgamesh, um, the Book of the Dead. I mean, you know, and we could look into Indian culture and the Vedas and these, you know, ancient cultures. You and you and I did very well discovering that sarcophagus together. Can we now <laughs> can we now discover the Tower of Babel, please? Oh yes. Thank you. The Tower of Babel, the biblical myth about uh, human hubris is one of the explanations that is used to try to understand how languages came to be different. So if we look across the world, we know there are many different language groups and each of them has a distinctive identity. Some are related, some are not. Especially Renaissance, you know, sort of like, you know, late medieval Renaissance scholars were trying to understand the differences among scripts. And they were trying to figure out what was the original language. Was there a language and a script that preceded Babel? Because at Babel, what happens is that as humans build a tower that is too high, trying to reach the heavens, you know, in the biblical story, God becomes angry and punishes human beings by giving them all different languages so they cannot communicate with each other. That became a very reasonable explanation for why we had different languages and different scripts. But someplace in popular imagination and scholarly imagination, there was still a conviction that there must be an original language and an original script. It's a wonderful quest. <laughs> this is a little wildest program called LNL. And my guest who gets A for effort is Johanna Drucker, <laughs> who has written Inventing the Alphabet, the Origin of Letters from Antiquity to the Present. Now, alphabet understandings were, well, not only religious, they were often mystical, almost fantastical. Yes. Yes, yes uh, there are many magical alphabets and what we call sort of like exotic scripts that have their own life. They become fixed exemplars, by which I mean a set of signs and glyphs that are visually, graphically distinct. They get copied and passed on. So for instance, we have an alphabet that is attributed to the angel Raphael as the alphabet that Raphael gave to Abraham as he left Chaldea to go to Canaan. Like, hello? Wait a minute, right? So ancient Chaldea is the Tigris-Euphrates. Canaan is the area uh, west of the Jordan River. But this script becomes fixed graphically and transmitted through the Middle Ages into the Renaissance through these things we call grimoire that are medieval sort of, you know, compendia of spells and of occult knowledge. But these things migrate through copying. Now, They're amazing. Many, many alphabets, as, as we're hearing. I'd like you to introduce us now to an extraordinary fellow with the wonderful name of James Bonaventure Hepburn. <gasps> Do we love him? If I could be named James Bonaventure Hepper, and I think my life would have been totally different. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, well, um, Hepper is one of the interesting compendium makers because he is actually working at the Vatican. He has access to the Vatican Library, and he puts together a beautiful engraving called the Virga Aurea and has 72 different scripts on it. 
And many of those are actual scripts, Arabic, Hebrew, Armenian, Ethiopic, you know, and so forth. But he also, because he has access to the Vatican Library, is able to call these magical scripts. And he's sort of at the end of the time that these boundaries between what are scripts used for actual languages and scripts that have a mystical origin get grouped together. So the Virgo Aurea, um, you can look at, you know, Google Virgo Aurea. It's this magnificent compendium. But the religious monks became very nervous about the mystical scripts. And so they went back into their collections and destroyed many of the manuscripts that had these angelic and mythic and mystical scripts in them. Now, so the, it's only the, with works like Hepburn that we have these records. Yeah. I think you should uh, change your name by deed, Paul. You deserve to do so. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The the scholarship went into, uh, well, more analytical realms in the 17th and 18th century with a strong Christian agenda. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, there's a strong Christian agenda. There's also a rabbinic agenda, right? So there's a whole investigation of, you know, biblical origins and the conviction that Moses brought the alphabet down from Mount Sinai when he brought the tablets because the Decalogue contains every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But what alphabet was it? So that's one whole series of inquiries that plagues 17th and 18th century. This is, this is the, the notion. Rat- this is the notion of the divine gift. Exactly, of the divine gift. But meanwhile, in the 17th and 18th century, you have the development of antiquarian, very rational, systematic historians, and a fantastic figure like Bernard de Montfaucon, the 17th century French antiquarian, who, you know, starts to really systematically look at collections of antiquarian materials. And Montfaucon, in the introduction to you know, Antiquity Explained says there must be evidence of the Bible. There must be objects on which we can guarantee the authenticity of biblical knowledge. And he goes to every antiquarian he knows in Europe, looks at their cabinets, and draws the objects in them and cannot find anything that is of biblical age. And he is distraught by this. But he's a rational person, as is Thomas Astle, the keeper of the keys of the Tower of London in the 18th century. They want to establish this historical record. Johanna, would you, uh, I, I don't want to be personal, but would you uh, tell me about your relationship with Edmund Fry? <laughs> well, Edmund Fry, whose 1799 Pantographia was one of my start points for my research, is one of my great heroes. I have many heroes in this story. I have many antecedents in my research whose work I really wanted to be sure could be brought forward to the next generation. Fry was a punch cutter. That won't mean much to most of your listeners, but that means he was part of a printing family. He cut steel punches, which means things that look like, you know, a teeny tiny piece of metal in order to make letter forms that could be cast and then, you know, used for printing. That's 18th and 19th century technology. So Fry decides that he wants to put together a compendium called Pantographia, all writing. That's how we would translate that. And he wants that compendium to represent every existing script that he can find. Now, this is 1799, and he's British. He's in London. So we get also a map of the British Empire and every territory that it is, you know, involved in where communication in writing and language is meaningful. But Fry, it's 1799, is on the cusp of a major paradigm shift because in the early part of the 19th century, the understanding of time changes radically in Western culture. Fry is still living in a biblical time frame. 
he goes into all of these amazing sources, brings them forward. He has all these Chaldean letters. He has all these sources, you know, that, you know, I could go into detail, but it's esoteric and it is complete. But he is only using a biblical time frame. By the early 19th century, the geologist James Hutton and others have transformed the understanding of time into deep time. So what's interesting about Fry is he was a great resource for me because he will show me the page, the source from which he has taken everything, but he is still working in a paradigm that's about to break. You're a great team, you and Fry, I have to say. <laughs> now, before I let you go, how on earth did you get started in this, well, esoteric area? <laughs> Well, you know what's interesting, actually, Philip, is that I started into graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. I had already been printing letterpress books for 10 years. So I'm a printer, I'm a writer. I started into the university and I realized no one looks at writing. They all depend on writing, but nobody looks at it. Nobody looked at the history of writing and its, its role. And I go into the stacks at the fantastic Doe Library at Berkeley. And there are things on the shelves there that are no longer there, but among them was a book printed in the 17th century, little vellum cover. And it was a tiny book by Franciscus Mercurius van Helmont. I pull this thing off the shelf and in it are these engravings. And the engravings show a slice of a human head showing the organs of speech and the way that they match the shape of alphabetic letters in a crown that wraps around this person's head. And they're identified as Hebrew and Chaldean. And I'm like, what is Chaldean? <laughs> I have no idea. Well, I have no idea. And I'm looking at this little thing, and it turns out that Van Helmont was a buddy of Leibniz who, like, you know, ghost wrote a book with him, that his father was a famous alchemist, that he's in prison while he's writing this book. And I'm, like, over the moon trying to figure out, okay, i got to understand this thing. And I spent, really, 40 years figuring it all out, you know. Drucker, Drucker you, are a, you are a total delight. You have to come back on the program. <laughs> yes, Ladies yes. and gentlemen, be upstanding for our guest, <laughs> Johanna Drucker. Her book is Inventing the Alphabet, the Origin of Letters from Antiquity to the Present, and it's published in alphabetical form by uh, the Chicago <laughs> University Press. Thanks, Johanna. Thank you, Philip. This was a delight. On our next beloved listeners, Ian Dunt is back with an update from the Kingdom of Charlie Three, and we'll head uh, to Haiti, the Caribbean nation on the brink of civil war. And then a celebration of a great Australian, my old friend, Geoffrey Dutton. See you then. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.